Now I'm here. Now I'm here. And now I'm here. And now you're here, dear listener, we can begin. Welcome to episode 30, Choices, Choices. We are Martin Packer from somewhere in space. <laughs> and Morna Wally from ZOS Development and IBM Poughkeepsie, but, you know, working from home for almost two years now. <laughs> and this time in this episode, we have a guest. I'm very happy that we have Scott Ballantyne from ZOS Development. So, as we always do, we talk about where we've been lately. But where have you been lately, virtually speaking? Yeah, so it's been a while since we had a new episode. Martin and I have uh, had some holidays to take, vacations to take, uh, lots of other activities that came. So this episode has been a while in coming. But where we have been virtually lately is the last thing I'm thinking of is the GSE UK virtual conference. I just wanted to throw that one out. I thought that was a great event that I went to and I thought it was great. Yeah, I enjoyed presenting that too, and I had two sessions. And also at IBM's Technical University, I had a couple of sessions. So you should probably go to the proceedings for session replays and slides for that one. I also presented some very similar material to a couple of sessions for some Swedish customers. So um, why did we call this episode Choices, Choices, Martin? Well, it relates to our topics topic, which is all about choices we make. So we have something in the what's new category, don't we? Yes, we do. And it's absolutely important new news is that we have rather recently announced our extension of the legacy server pack, which is the custom pack dialogue that it uses in ISPF. So we were going to withdraw that beginning of this year, and we have announced an extension to it. And the reason for that is because the legacy server pack dialogue had a function called dataset merge. And we didn't have that capability yet available in ZOSMF. And, and we clearly know that customers need that capability. So without having a gap where there was no dataset merge support, we decided to extend the legacy server pack dialogue, you know, in ISPF until we can get the dataset merge function in ZOSMF. Now, the ZOSMF function is going to be provided in APAR PH42028. But the rub here is that once the ZOSMF function is available, then the server pack process has to exploit that function. So we're not exactly sure at this point in time when we're going to withdraw the legacy server pack. It will be when, of course, the server pack function has exploited data set merge. Uh, but we're going to announce when that withdrawal will happen in the second quarter of 2022. But I do want to encourage you, if you don't need data set merge, you know, please just move on to ZOSMF. SMF server pack, because if you don't need that function, there's no reason to wait for uh, it. Just go ahead and move on to ZOSMF server pack. And now it's time for our mainframe topic, and this time it's ZOS 2.5. Right. So, Martin, let's do a reality check right now. So here we are, ZOS 2.3 is going to go end of support in September of 2022. ZOS 2.4 is not orderable since the end of January. And both of these events are pretty compelling. They could well make you move forward in your planning. Yeah, and what would be better to upgrade to but ZOS 2.4? So what I want to talk about in this mainframe topic is uh, what's in ZOS 2.5, but a lot that's in ZOS 2.5 has been rolled back into 2.4. But of course, you'd pick all that stuff up if you upgraded to 2.5, which is probably a better place to be. 
Yeah, absolutely. So I wouldn't expect necessarily anything beyond this point to be rolled back to ZOS 2.4 if you're thinking about what's going to be rolled back. So I'd think about that. But what we really wanted to do in this item was to talk about things that are unique to 2.5. Exactly. So this would be the reasons why you want to go to ZOS 2.5 because rollback is not planned for these items. So the first of all, the item that I want to put on our list is data set file system. This is really an incredibly great function. So what this will do in a nutshell is it will allow you to access MVS data sets from ZOS Unix. And you can access them very easily and simply with reference. So these would be supported for sequential and partitioned data sets. And when we say partitioned, we mean both PDS and PDSE. And when we say sequential, that does include compressed and encrypted data sets. Yeah, absolutely. And it's for certain record formats, so you're going to want to read about that when you start to use it. Uh, one thing of note is these data sets do have to be cataloged. So give me some examples of where you might use this. So a good example might be if you wanted to do text processing with grep, set, or awk, and you could do those on MVS data sets kind of, I'll say, natively, right, with those commands. Right. So I think a nice example would probably be system log. But of course, for that case, you would need to save it, for example, in SDSF into a sequential data set. Yeah, indeed. Um, you could also, you know, if you were in love with the VI editor and you wanted to VI edit on an MVS data set natively, of course, you could do that. Um, probably the biggest use case that we've heard, and we've had this requirement forever, is that you could do file transfers with SFTP and it would allow them to access the MVS data set, you know, natively, I'll say. And this also opens us up to, you know, automation, Ansible, DevOps tooling, because now what you had before we can reference MVS datasets is just good old, let's say, Unix files, right? So one thing to note is that serialization and security is going to be just as it was as if it had been accessed with ISPF. You're going to, you know, be using RACIF dataset trials to make sure that you have access to the dataset, and you'll see NQs similar to an ISPF edit NQ, and, and this is a Sysplex-wide statement that we're making here. Right, and there are rules, aren't there, for mapping dataset name and, and type in, onto a path. Right, so when you're going to want to reference an MVS data set, you'll start the reference with uh, a slash DSFS, so that would be data set file system. And when you start a path name to that MVS data set with DSFS, then we know that it is, you know, we're going to go be communicating with an MVS data set. And then the second level directory on that path will be like slash txt or slash bin or slash rec. And, and you need to know what kind of a, a data set it is. Right, exactly. But what about the case of PDSs? Well, for PDSs, we have to think about member names, right? And so the PDS member names is going to map directly into that directory or that path again. And you'll use the member name as the file name within the path. And what about things like uppercase versus lowercase? Well, it's going to be mapped to lowercase from uppercase, but all the names are going to be case insensitive. Now, the important thing to note about this is it's going to be coming in a PTF that we're planning for the first quarter of 2022. So that's data set file system, awesome function in ZOS 2.5.
So the second thing I wanted to talk about was the ability to do a dynamic change of the master catalog. So by dynamic, we mean without an IPL, don't we? Absolutely. Love that word dynamic. And this has been a customer requirement. So this has been for a long time. So that's why I wanted to mention that also in ZOS 2.5. So you have to have a valid new master catalog to switch to. And also when you're, you know, let's say going to switch to the other master catalog, we can also have that command take a comment. And the purpose of that presumably is something like appearing in a log. Yeah, exactly. So that, you know, the operator or the system programmer could put a little comment on, you know, why they perhaps might want to, you know, change the master catalog, which will be helpful. So, yeah, what are the examples you can easily think of for this? We've got two, and it's very important use cases, is because users want to remove those old deprecated embed or replicate from their master catalog, and they might have had to otherwise use a Sysplex wide IPL without this support. Now, this dynamic change master catalog support is available right at GA for 2.5. So the next one I wanted to talk about is RACF database encryption. We have a statement of direction for this, and this will be coming later in ZOS 2.5, but this will be the ability to encrypt your RACF database. Now, should you choose to exploit this, I just want to you know, give you a little bit of warning. You're going to have to follow a series of customization steps, so, so do prepare for that uh, when you see this function being delivered. So let's cover a few other things briefly that are in 2.5 that are unique to it. And first, a couple of scalability items. Yeah, so the first thing on the scalability list we have for ZOS 2.5 is that you'd be able to increase the ZOS memory limit above 4 terabytes. So what this means is that we're only going to have 2 gig frames above 4 terabyte real. Right, and those aren't that common, I would say, although I think there are a couple of key examples we should note, which are Java and also ZCX. Yep. The other item for a scalability one I wanted to mention is the ability to have more concurrently open vSAM linear data sets. So we've got a couple of APARs that you should note here. APAR PH09189 is required to enable the support for DB2. And we also have a recommended APAR for DB2, which is PH33238, which will help you get the most value out of this support. Now, to me, open data sets is such an interesting topic that I've got lots of thoughts on how we might return to this topic in a later episode. Yeah, I can see that happening. Now, we also had a couple of user requirements that we rolled into ZOS 2.5, which people might take keen interest in. So there are some ISPF enhancements, aren't there? Yes, there are. So we've updated ISPF to support PDSE version 2 member generations. It's been a while in coming. We've had that requirement for a while, so ZOS 2.5 is where that's going to happen. The second enhancement that we have in ISPF, I think is pretty cool too, is that you can, on the submit command, add an optional parameter to identify the subsys, their subsystem. Now, why this I think is useful is if you needed to direct a job to the JES2 emergency subsystem. Another user requirement that we've had, which is I think very awesome as well, is we've had some enhancements to access method services, IDCAMs. So the first one is that we'll have on the delete mask, we have two new options that you can take advantage of. One is test and the other is exclude. So test will return all the objects that would have been deleted if the test wasn't specified. So you could do a little check on that and see what you would have deleted with a test option. And the other option, exclude, will mean that it will allow a subset of objects that match the mask to be excluded from those being deleted. 
Another IDCAMS enhancement I'd like to mention is that Repro is enhanced to move its I.O. buffers above the line so that we can reduce the instances of out of space or 878 ABINs. And last but not least in ZOS 2.5, another awesome capability is the ZOS Encryption Readiness Technology, or ZERT. I hope everyone's been taking a look at that. In ZOS 2.5, we have the support to detect and respond to weak or questionable connections, which means that we can have policy-based enforcement during these TCP IP connection uh, being established. And now it's time for our performance topic. And this one's called, What's the Use? It's actually the title of a presentation about usage data and the IFA usage macro. So first of all, it's very nice to have my friend Scott Ballantyne from Development here. So just say a little bit about yourself, Scott. Hello, so my name is Scott Ballantyne. I'm a part of the SMF development team. I've been with IBM for 25 years. And obviously you all know me, I'm, I'm not in development, I'm from the field. And I make that point because this item is going to give a development feel to it and also a field perspective. And we're going to summarize some of the key points from the What's the Use presentation. Yes, so we developed this presentation to point two ways. First, uh, to give some information for developers, both within IBM as well as outside of IBM, who might be doing some of this usage data processing, as well as how customers might be able to, to make use of it. And we hope this is motivational because it's my contention that customers can get a lot of value out of using the usage data. And it's important to know how IFA usage provides this data so you know what the, what the data is coming back out of the other side. So I like to use the posh word provenance to cover this because you want to know where the data came from if you're a customer. And equally, if you're a developer, you want to know some of the ways it might be used. So let's give a flavor of what you can do with this data. So let's start off by talking about what you can put into the IFA usage service. So this is a macro that anybody can use, whether you're a vendor or an IBM product or even uh, your own homegrown applications. And what it does is it allows us to track which products are being used and also how it's being used. And we can give you some numbers uh, along with that, uh, what kind of uh, time and things that are being used and how it's being used. So the first thing that IFA usage requires is basically the name of the product, right? That means giving us the product vendor, basically your, your company that, that created the, uh, the product. The name of the product, something called the product ID, the product version, as well as the product qualifier. And these are all just strings of information that we, we use to determine a unique product. And we also have the ability to work with some numbers. Uh, some of those we track uh, within the service itself, like the product TCB time or the product SRB time, but also the product can give us uh, some data called function data that they can ask us to track for the product as well. So let's give a flavor of what you can do with that data once it's been registered with IFA usage and ending up in, a, in SMF. 
So, of course, the use of usage data is ostensibly for SCRT, which is fed by SMF type 70 subtype 1 and SMF 89. But the point is, just because it's meant for SCRT, you might well want to glean some other value from what is produced using the IFA usage service. So what Scott talked about that's encoded via IFA usage appears in SMF 30, actually all subtypes where relevant, and SMF 89 subtype 1. So the way I like to think about SMF 89 subtype 1 is it enables me to run some queries. So at the highest level, what software levels are running in which LPARs? And then if you drill down a bit, you can, and this is a slight surprise to us all, I think, get DB2 and MQ subsystems, actually their names, out of SMF89. So that's a nice query to run as well. And then drilling down from 89, which is actually cut more or less at the system level, into the SMF30, you get address space level information. So you get what I loftily call topology. So, for example, from the usage data section, you get kicks regions connecting into DB2, likewise into MQ. You also get some numbers. So you can, in combination with that kind of topology, get, for example, all the connections into DB2, how much CPU they use, which gives you a flavor of what the DB2 subsystem is for, likewise the MQQ manager. So let's talk a little bit about function data for a second. Yes, so one of the functions is called function data that IFA usage can provide. And this allows the product to give us some information that they want tracked with the product. One of the examples we always use is for a product that processes transactions. Maybe it would want to keep count of the number of transactions that it processed. So I think that's a very nice one, but I have to say I'm not sure if any IBM products are actually using it. But that isn't a reason why a vendor couldn't, for example, so printed pages or something. One other thing to bear in mind is that while we talk about the ability to collect CPU numbers, TCB and SRB as Scott identified, with DB2, you generally don't get non-zero numbers for that because there is a parameter which defaults to no, which is SMF89 uh, in the ZPALM, which is the startup deck for D DB2. So sometimes these numbers could be available, but actually aren't. Although you can override that, that particular default with a bit of effort. Right. And it's also important to keep in mind that we slice the data a little bit differently between the, the SMF type 30 records versus the type 89 records. Uh, for example, the type 89 records they have all of the usage for the product where the SMF30 is just going to show what's used in that address space. So it, the data looks a little bit different, but it's all coming from the same place. And another example I think I would give is the 89 has zip information in, whereas the 30 doesn't in the usage data section. So there are some subtle differences between two of these. So some of these examples were given might inspire developers to think how they code IFA usage invocations. So, for example, whatever you put in in the product version field when you code the macro, that's exactly what appears in SMF 30. So you might like to think about tidiness and consistency. As I've alluded to, you can get a bit of detail like subsystem name 
Well, the way that works out is you code it in the product qualifier in the IFA usage macro. So you could creatively use the IFA usage product qualifier field to put names in there. So that's worth thinking about. And as I say, DB2 and MQ have already done that. I have to say in passing that IMS haven't. And also, you need to think about how you might use, as we say, the function data to fill in that opportunity for counting something. So, that's the presentation itself. We've given the presentation four times so far. The first time we gave it was at the Technical University virtual event in October of 2021. And then fairly soon after that, in November, we gave it at the GSE UK virtual conference. And then, also late in 2021, we presented it to some Nordics customers at the Nordics mainframe technical day. And then finally, the fourth presentation, or the fourth time we gave the presentation, we gave it to our own teams, uh, my, my development team as well as uh, Martin's team. Unfortunately, you know, we meant this to be a dry run, but it actually ended up after the, uh, the other three presentations. So we're not very good at planning these things. No, I guess we can call that a wet run. <laughs> <laughs> but you know, like all of the presentations I ever do for a start, it's a living presentation. So for, to begin with, we could give it at other venues if it's of interest. Right. And we also had uh, designed it in a way that we could give it to product development teams if that was appropriate, uh, a team that was looking to use IFA usage in their product. And that's not necessarily IBMers that we're talking about there. Right. But, of course, living means it continues to evolve. Every time we give this presentation, we learn something new, get a question, and we, uh, we make some changes. So every time we do it, it ends up being a little different, which is a good thing because we make it better every time. So I think our hope is with this presentation that developers, once they learn how to, to use IFA usage, they can delight their customers by using it properly, uh, using some of that information that I talked about above. And for their part, customers will take better advantage of the information. In the way that I've shown with some of my reporting examples, or indeed you may well come up with some of your own. Let's move on to our topic, topic for today. And this is entitled Choices, Choices, which is the name uh, that we gave the episode. So it's about how to choose a language to use for which purpose. So yes, choices, choices, decision trees, everybody. But this really is about my experience mostly with choosing languages. And I've chosen a rather large number over the years. So at university and before, I became familiar with quite a lot of programming languages even then. Now, all of those languages still exist. But guess what? Not a single one is one I've used to any great degree in my career, which kind of makes you think about what you learn at college. Yeah, it does. <laughs> now, I think one thing to say is I'm not really a language design nerd. I take an interest in these sorts of things. So, so you won't find the deepest analysis in this discussion. All right, but, but let's look at some particular cases. So let's look first at serving HTML. What I tend to use for serving HTML is uh, a language called PHP running under the Apache open source web server on a Mac as localhost, which basically means the web server is serving to the browser on the same machine. Now, the reason why I do this is actually because I dynamically construct HTML in reporting, and I use that reporting in my day job for analysis. 
And one of the nice things about PHP is that it very readily processes XML and runs in the web server and it can do file transfer, which we need to do to get graphics and so on off the mainframe. And it handles things like URL query strings really quite nicely. Now I have to say that PHP 8 caused quite a lot of rework and there's a particular point for mentioning that which I'll come to in a moment. And PHP is no longer built into Mac OS as of Monterey. So I went and downloaded PHP and of course I downloaded the latest one which was PHP 8. Now the problem with PHP 8 is there's a degree of incompatibility, not huge but some, basically tightening up compared to previous PHP versions. So those of you who are using my SD2 HTML WLM service definition formatter will note that I've had to make some fixes for PHP version 8, which I'm not going to test back on PHP version 7. I'm keeping one version. The other thing that I do a little bit of is a completely different stack, which is JavaScript and Node.js on a Raspberry Pi. And that's really good because there's plenty of ecosystem around Node.js. Now I will note that Node also seems to be a moving target. It's a bit more stable now, but in the early days of Node, all sorts of things broke all of the time. So that's really a couple of stacks that I use for serving HTML. So another consideration you need to take is where you're going to run it. For example, is it going to run on a laptop? Right, so that's different really from serving HTML as a problem space. So most of the stuff I do is actually in Python. And then again, there's a theme here. We've got built-in capabilities for things like processing CSV files. We've got beautiful SOAP for processing XML and HTML. So there's some nice capabilities that you can orchestrate. Now again, we have this problem of incompatibility. Thankfully, most of my code is written for Python 3, which is incompatible in places with Python 2, but at least I didn't start with Python 2. I will make one note that there's a very nice thing whose name leads me to have to discuss it with you, which is in Python 3.8, there is something called the walrus operator. You've got to explain that. I love that term. What, what is that, Martin? I love it too. Basically, the syntax is a colon with an equal straight after it. And what it is, is a combination of a variable assignment and a test all in one operation, which if you're doing lots of tests against, let's say, a string, is very, very handy. So I love the term walrus operator as well, which is largely why I mentioned it. Then you have to be careful in Python with the pickiness that I don't much like, which is tabs versus spaces. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That one kind of was annoying to me in Python when I was learning it. So don't get me started on that one. <laughs> well, I have tools, I suppose, that tidy it up, which gets us some sanity back, but not much. I also use on a laptop automation tools. So I've mentioned Keyboard Maestro before, which basically can orchestrate almost anything, including user interfaces um, on a Mac. And I use something that in some ways is similar called Shortcuts, which started off on iPhone and iPad. It's very much a drag and drop way of doing automation, much simpler than Keyboard Maestro, but in a similar vein. That's now available on Mac OS, again, as of Monterey. I also do a lot of JavaScript programming um, to orchestrate a couple of apps, Drafts, which is my note-taking app, and OmniFocus, which is my task management app. 
And the nice thing about those is they have cross-platform programming models. So you can use the same code in the same way on, let's say, an iPhone and also on a Mac. And of course, Apple's blessed automation language is, is AppleScript, which I don't particularly like as a language, but it's kind of handy. All right, but let's move on to ZOS, Martin, because that's that's really where I think our listeners, at least my my listeners are. You've, you've got a lot of other great information there, but let's get to the ZOS topic. Right, so let's start with Assembler and DF Sort, because I use those in combination usually, actually, um, for high-volume data processing. And one of the nice things here is that there are mapping macros uh, shipped for assembler mapping macros, I should say, shipped for many products. So there's a good what you can do with it kind of argument in support of assembler and DF sort. And I would say mostly for high volume data processing, but not necessarily. And for everything else, I tend to use Rex. And for me, that's orchestrating GDDM and SLR. That orchestration is a kind of key word when we talk about languages, actually. Uh, and as well as GDDM and SLR, of course, you can orchestrate things like ISPF. And as of ZOS 2.1, you can process SMF with it because Rex supports VBS data. Yeah. For me, I use Rex for health checks that I write because this is really the easiest high-level language to write the checks in. And I've got a lot of great samples to base on. So that really speeds my development if I'm if I'm writing a health check. And the other thing I think about on ZOS is workflows because I tend to do those as well. And it's easy to issue commands uh, from a workflow into Rex and, and parse the response as well, which which helps me with my workflow work too. So let's pull together some threads out of this. And I've kind of hinted at them all the way through. And actually, Marlon, you hinted at one. The overall lesson would be choose the language that respects the problem at hand. So orchestrates what you need to orchestrate. Runs in the environment you need it to run in. And I would say a key one is that it has sufficient linguistic expression without doing really weird things that only programming language nerds like to do. And I've alluded to this next one as well, that it's sufficiently stable as a language and it's clear which versions of the language you should attempt to support. Also, of course, it has to perform well enough. So as, as a counterexample, I've done this and I wouldn't recommend it, don't use Rex against SMF30, which is a high volume, not the highest volume, but a high volume SMF record type. It's far too voluminous. So Rex doesn't perform particularly well against large volumes of data. Someone will probably object to that statement, but I'm going to stand by it. So in summary, just because you have a hammer, not everything is a nail. And not every oyster contains a pearl. Ho, ho. Ho, ho. And now as we come to the end of this episode, it's time to talk about the places we expect to be speaking at in the near future. Martin, I am so happy. I'm going to be traveling in person for the first time in two years, share 27th through 30th of March in Dallas. I have six sessions on the agenda. Uh, that's technically known as umpteen sessions, I think. Yeah, and two of those are the ZOSMF labs where you need to bring your own device. So I'm going to encourage folks to use it. We're going to be on ZOS 2.5, latest and greatest. Good stuff there. Well, I'm actually also going to be at Share and equally traveling for the first time in two years. I'm not actually presenting this time, unlike last time I was at Share. But despite that, or maybe because of that, my dance card is filling up 
when it comes to meeting people at SHARE. Yeah, I bet it is. And we'll be glad to see you. Now let's talk about what's on the blog. I have four things that I've done on the blog. Actually, one of them was Cheryl Watson's newsletter, which is really important to read. So I've got four items that I've been working on since our last episode. And I've got nine items on the blog, but it has been a long time. And I think you're jealous about one of my titles, aren't you? I certainly am. Three billboards. I wish I would have thought of that one. The trouble is I can't quite remember what that one was about. But folks, links to all our blog posts are going to be in the show notes. And of course, we welcome feedback. So please send us any feedback that you might have. You can contact me as martin underscore packer at uk.ibm.com or Martin Packer on Twitter. And I am M. Wally, that's M-W-A-L-L-E on Twitter. We welcome any feedback that you have. So it goes. So you've appeared on another show, haven't you? Yes, I have. The the Frank and Jeff Terminal Talk. That was a very different uh, experience than how we do a podcast, I have to say. I can imagine. You know, they are so efficient with this stuff. They do it in one take. And, you know, for us, it takes several takes to do stuff. And and they just they're able to get a whole lot more uh, episodes out than we are, which is which is really I'm envious of them. So how do you think they do it? Ah, they just do it in one shot over the telephone, and the next thing you know, it's out there the next day. They're they're, they're really efficient at this, where, you know, as you know, with our sections and our guests, we do a whole lot more outlining and, um, you know, individual recordings and and different mixes. So it just takes us a while. Hmm. I just wonder how much preparation they do. I'm not really sure, because uh, it really does seem to go very smoothly. I did not know what they were going to talk about. I, you know, they asked me questions out of the blue, but, you know, for us, we, we have a very uh, good outline and we know what we're going to talk about. So it was a very different experience. Yeah, I would imagine there's some kind of furious peddling or is it paddling under the surface going on here in terms of there's probably lots of prep and you just don't get to see it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. But on my side, it's just, bam, one meeting and we're done. And, you know, the questions come out of the blue kind of towards me. So it was interesting. It was a lot of fun. It was really good. There are a bunch of fun guys doing an episode. So it's it's real nice. Yeah, it does sound like fun. And I'm not saying we should do it that way, but I can see an upside to it. And I just wonder quite how much goes into their show notes, because there's an awful lot that you put into ours. Yeah, I mean, the time it takes for you to mix is equal to the time it takes me to do the show notes because I want to make sure I have a whole bunch of links and helpful. And even if you didn't want to listen to the podcast, you could still read the show notes and get a really good gist of what's going on. Yeah, but the net of it is they get many more episodes out than we do. So talking of which, it's been a long time really, hasn't it? Oh, it's been way too long, Martin. You know, I it just has... I don't know if everybody knows, but it takes a lot of hours for us to make one episode. So it's just been, you know, a long time in coming because it's hard to find time nowadays. I think the time and the scheduling is the real, real thing. And actually, I think the planning is not so much of a problem because we tend to get pretty good rough outlines, at least of the next episode, including the one to follow this one. Yeah, exactly. I think we've got plenty of exciting topics. It's just, you know, what episode they're going to go in and, you know, getting it all ready that way. So we do a lot of planning. Anyway, it sounds like you had a lot of fun doing that one. 
Oh, I did. It was great. 